0: Why don't we stand to our feet and bless the Lord together? Is he worthy? Hallelujah. Come on, clap your hands and shout to God with the voice of triumph. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. If you have your Bibles, would you join me in the book of Psalms, the 119th Psalm? Amen. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen. Thank you, Jesus. Welcome to every one of you that are here today, amen. We are so thankful that you are in the house of the Lord. And for those of you joining us online, thank you for tuning in, amen. I'm going to read verse 89 in this psalm, it's the longest of the psalms, so we're definitely not going to read it all. Verse 89, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Amen. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Praise God. I want to preach just a little while on this thought. God is not incredible. Amen. God is not incredible. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, open our understanding today that we might comprehend the Scripture cause every hindrance to be rebuked and cast out, and Lord, let us be convicted and converted by your truth and your love. Let my tongue be the pen of a ready writer and write your words upon our hearts, Lord. We pray these all in the matchless name of Jesus. Uh, Amen. If you believe it, would you say amen? amen? Praise God. You may be seated. Psalm 119 is the longest of the Psalms. It has 176 verses. This comprises 22 stanzas of eight verses each, thereby making Psalm 119 an acrostic poem. In most Bibles, you might notice, and if you have a Bible open, you can look, most Bibles above The the, each segment or stanza, you'll see a Hebrew word, which is actually a Hebrew letter. For example, one through eight is Aleph. And there's a picture of that that's going to come on the screen here that you can see what Aleph would look like. This would be the Aleph symbol uh, and the Hebrew letter. The first, it would be like R-A in English. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, therefore, 22 stanzas, each of them beginning... So like, for example, all the ones in 1 through 8 begin with lef. Okay, so each of those eight verses begin with that. That's what an acrostic is. Okay, there. So there's your history lesson. There's your little introduction of, of what an acrostic is. So have you ever heard everybody say that? Have you ever heard a say oh, Psalm 119 is an acrostic. You're like, oh, I know what that is now. Um, and some of you might be thinking, okay, that's, that's pretty cool. That's great, you know. Uh, but why the crazy title? When I told my wife, she says, you love doing this, don't you? I said, yes, I do. I am somewhat of a literalist. And so when I look at the word incredible and I look it up and it means not credible or unbelievable, then I realize God can't be that. Because the Bible says God cannot lie. In fact, the Bible says it's impossible for him to lie. The Bible says God cannot fail. And the Bible also says He never leaves us nor forsakes us. Therefore, God is credible and is believable. So, thus my title today, God is not incredible. In this beautiful acrostic, Psalm 119 proves the credibility and the believability of God. The key verse that I open with today, kind of right in the middle, 88 would be the exact middle, But uh, the key verse sets the tone for what I believe God wants me to preach to this congregation today, both in person and online. In a world where our friends can be fickle and we can be hurt by others, God's Word never fails. In an economy that's on the verge of dissolving, God's Word never fails. In a society where politicians lie and fail, God's Word never fails. In a world where family may fail you and let you down, God's Word never fails. Amen. In a church filled with people who have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, God's Word never fails. Hallelujah. The Word of God transcends every culture, every generation, every situation. Praise the Lord. The Word of God is the greatest love story ever told but it's not a romance novel history and archaeology and science have all been proven by the bible but it's not a history book nor is it a science textbook nor is it a magazine about archaeology The Word of God has no hands, but it reaches for me and holds me up. It has no feet, but it walks with me every day. It has no mouth, but it speaks to me clearly. And it has no eyes, but it sees me to the core of who I am. Praise God. Are you thankful for the Word of God today? (laughs) Psalm 119, it's an unknown psalmist who may or may not have written it. We don't know. Uh, Some attribute it to David because of his love for God, his love for the Word, uh, for how good of a king he was in in spite of some of his mistakes and sins. But other scholars believe King Josiah might have been the writer of it uh, and revealing in it the breadth and the length and the depth and the height of God's Word. The reason I would believe that Josiah could be the psalmist uh, is because, like David, Josiah was a good king of Judah who restored worship to the one true God. At the young age of eight years old, We have some Sunday school going on right now just a few yards from here, and there's some eight-year-olds in a class learning about God today. Amen. An eight-year-old, Josiah, became king. He was left parentless by a civil war and by assassination of his family, and he was crowned king. At this young age, he had already been exposed to violence and injustice and evil and sin and idolatry. At the age of sixteen, Josiah made the wise choice that he would not follow in the footsteps of his evil father Amnon or his grandfather Manasseh. Instead, Josiah traced his roots all the way back to David, and he determined that he would set his heart and his mind to seek the Lord with all his heart. His mom, his stepmom, rather Jedediah, had raised him and had taught him in the word of the. Lord and the admonition of God her name by the way means God's darling and certainly she was by the impact and influence she had on Josiah at the age of 20 Josiah purged Judah and Jerusalem of their idolatry tearing down the groves and all of the idols and altars that had been built up and not just tearing them down but restoring worship to the one true God. How many of you know it's not enough just to empty yourself of sin but you've got to fill yourself up with God. Josiah recognized this and he tore down these idols but he built up worship to the one true God at age 26 uh, during the restoration of the temple worship he there was some rubble being removed uh, and uh, one of the Levites found a lost book of the law and they brought it to Josiah and he immediately had it read to him and all of his court uh, and then he called the entire nation to a day or uh, to a time rather of prayer and fasting and to restore the reading of the law and to respect and obey it. Uh, Amen. Unfortunately he died at the age of 39 in battle but this young king had such a love for God and a love for the word of God that he did these things and thus I believe it could have very well been Josiah that wrote it. The other reason I believe it was either him or David or maybe another one of the good kings is because a king upon their coronation would have to write out their love for the Word of God. And they would have on one side, usually the right side, they would have on their throne, they would have the law, the Torah, and it would be there to guide them. That was their constitution. That was their governing principle. It was there. And on the other side would be their thesis, you might say. Their their love for God's Word written out in their own words on the other side. And those were the guiding principles when they would judge a matter. Can I tell you the same is true still today in 2021. Even though you may not be a king or a queen on a throne, the Word of God still needs to be the governor of our lives. Amen? Amen? It's the highest authority. It supersedes every authority. Amen. And unlike the Constitution, which can get misinterpreted, misapplied, and misused, the Bible, which sometimes does, really can't because the Bible says that prophecy is of no private interpretation. Amen. It stands alone. It is forever settled in heaven. Praise the Lord. Praise God. And so... I want to take you through a journey of Psalm 119 and show you nine different words that are used to describe the Word of God. And I'm going to give you the the, the amount of times that they're used and we're going to look at some of those together and see what it means to have a love for the Word of God. The first word I'm going to direct our attention to is the word law. We actually see it in verse 1, the the verse that, that opens the entire psalm. Blessed are the undefiled in the way, who walk in the law of the Lord. This word law is the Hebrew word Torah. It's used 25 different times throughout this psalm. And it means the whole will of God, His instructions to us for holy living. How many of you know God wants us to be holy as He is holy. How many of you know it's not enough to just know the Word? We have to walk in the Word. Notice He said, who walk in the law of the Lord. How do you walk? Do you put the Bible down and step on it? No. What it's saying is what we understand from the New Testament, that we walk in the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit leads us. We walk in faith and not by sight. We, we, walk, in, we walk humbly, the Bible says. We walk in, in love. We walk in truth. In other words, it's our lifestyle. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're joining online. I'm glad that, that you know, you're, you're celebrating God together today. But what about tomorrow? What about when you're on your job? What about when you're on vacation? What about when you're in school? Are you still walking in the law of the Lord? The psalmist wanted God to open his eyes so that he could behold the wondrous things of God. Verse 18 tells us this. Whoever the psalmist was, he prayed for understanding that he could observe God's Word with his whole heart. We find this in verse 34. To the psalmist, the law, God's word, was more valuable to him than thousands of gold and silver. We find this in, in verse 72. He valued it so much, it was more important to him than literal money, literal gold or silver coins. The use of the word thousands indicates that it's 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 an infinite number. In other words, to him, the word of God was invaluable. Praise God. The psalmist in verse 92 recognized that God's word was his delight and it was his word that kept him, the psalmist, from perishing in affliction. How many of you know God's word has held you up? How many of you know there's been times where you've been discouraged and and you've been down, but the Lord sends you a verse. Somebody calls you or texts you. Somebody preaches something and that word begins to resonate in your spirit. God speaks to you and saves you and delivers you. The psalmist expressed this. Amen. In verse 136, the psalmist was, wept excessively because of those who refused to obey God's Word. He had such a love for the Word of God that when somebody else didn't love it, when somebody else didn't obey it, when others weren't walking in it, he would weep excessively. And I think in part he wept because of what they were doing, the sin they were committing, the, the life that they were living. But I think he also wept because of what they were missing. You know, a lot of people tell me, you know, you're not free going to church. You know, you, all this stuff you have to do. You know what I tell them? I don't have to do anything. There's an old song from when I was a kid, you know, it says, I choose to be a Christian. Nobody's making me do it. This is how I want to live. One of the verses said, nobody's holding a gun to my head, you know. In other words, nobody made me do this. Now, yes, my mom, she drugged me. Drugged me to the altar. Drugged me to church. I didn't, she didn't drug me like drugs. She drugged me like drugged me, like, you know, by the earlobe to the altar. But, yes, but when I became of age, it was my choice. If I didn't want to go, I didn't go. Okay. Since I've got a crazy title, it's maybe blowing your mind. Let me also blow your mind. I sinned as much as I wanted to this morning. And so did Terry. You know how much I wanted to? This much. In other words, I'm doing this not because of anybody, not because of any force. I'm doing this because I want to. And I believe that's why the psalmist wept, because he wept because they didn't understand the true freedom that comes from the Word of God. In verse 165, the psalmist knew that the key to not being offended was the peace that comes from loving God's Word. Hmm, maybe we ought to just read that one. Hmm, 165. Great peace have they which love thy law, and, huh, it does say it. Nothing shall offend them. Well, I'll just let that one hang for a minute. I, I just ran through just a, a small sampling right then of a number of the times that the word law is mentioned. And again, it's, it's, that word means The whole will of God, His instructions for holy living. It's it's His love, His passion. You can sense that whoever this writer was, whomever this psalmist was, he had a deep love for the Word of God. It guided him. It directed him. It corrected him. Amen? Amen? The psalmist did not search the law to find loopholes. He didn't search the pages to see what can I get away with, how how little can I give and still be called of God. Instead, as he searched, he searched to understand, to know, to do, to be. He sought God's Word daily so that he could be more pleasing to God. The next word the psalmist uses is the word testimonies. This word is used 22 times in Psalm 119. And it describes the word of God as a witness to himself and to his righteousness. In other words, it testifies of who God is. So it's another way to look at the Word of God. Imagine these nine words being a nine-dimensional view of the Word of God. You have law is, is one dimension. Now you have testimonies another dimension. And we're going to see a nine-dimensional view of how the psalmist loved the word of God. He says in verse 2, Blessed are they that keep his testimonies and that seek him with the whole heart. By the way, he's going to use that phrase wholeheart six times in these psalms indicating that he's loving God wholeheartedly. He's wanting to keep God's testimonies wholeheartedly. He's wanting to to follow the Word of God wholeheartedly. And I might ask, is there really any other way? Can you imagine if I told my wife, Shannon, I love you 93%, but 7% I'm reserving for something else. You think that would be an effective marriage? Probably not. So why would it be any less with God? Well, God, I'm going to love you on Sunday and on Wednesday and at a prayer meeting, but, you know, the other days are mine. I don't think it's going to work. In verse 14, talking about the testimonies of God, the psalmist said that all the riches... He That more valuable to him than all of the riches were the testimonies of God in which he rejoiced. This also indicates to me he probably was a king. Because a king would have, would have had access to all the wealth and would have been wealthy uh, as, as the king. And so he's saying, more than my position, more than the crown that I wear, more than all the jewels and gems, God's word is more to me. In verse number 22, the psalmist wanted to do nothing. He wanted nothing to do with reproach and contempt. He only wanted to keep God's testimonies. In verse 24, the testimonies of God, he said, are my delight and my counselors. In other words, God, I want you to counsel me, but also I delight in your word. You understand what he's saying there? God, I want you to lead me and guide me. Speak to me and direct me but I take delight in that. You know, sometimes if God says no, we get offended, don't we? Why is he saying no? You know, I think sometimes, I'm just going to be honest, I think sometimes we must remind God of what that kid in the grocery store reminds us of. I want a piece of candy! You know, and it's so loud that everybody can hear in the whole store, you know, right? I think that's how we look to God get blessed I didn't get blessed <laughs> you know God's up there rolling his eyes going oh, if only you knew right well moving on verse 36 knowing that temptation to covet is strong the psalmist said I incline my heart God's testimonies God I know if I'm not careful I can let the flesh take over and I can start coveting things so Lord incline my heart to your testimonies the psalmist knew in verse 129 that God's testimonies are wonderful and therefore he said I will keep them diligently wow are you getting the picture that whoever this writer was should be who we aspire to be When he was persecuted by his enemies, the psalmist did not stop keeping and loving God's testimonies. We see that in verse 157. Even though he was persecuted, even though enemies came against him, he said, I'm not going to stop loving God. It's kind of like the three Hebrew boys who said, but if not, O king, we're not going to bow. It was a faith that declared within them. And this psalmist had the same kind of faith. In verse 167, the psalmist not only kept these uh, uh, testimonies, but he exceedingly loved God's testimonies. Again, this is just a small sampling of the 22 different times this word is used to illustrate the beauty of God's word. If the psalmist were here today, he would most definitely agree with my title and tell you, no, God is not incredible. His testimonies to himself and to his righteousness prove otherwise. Amen. Amen. Are you thankful for the word? Praise God. I hope this is all right. I mean, you know, I know we ain't swinging from chandeliers. We don't got them anyways. But sometimes we got to, you know, slow it down into first gear a little bit and, and realize how much this word really means to us. It is not just a bunch of notes and words and ink on paper. This is the, the word of God that's forever settled. I remember reading a story about some, some people in a nation where Christianity is prohibited and, and they were able to smuggle some Bibles in and when the people got their very first Bible they ever held, they begin to weep and cry and hold it to their chest and cherish it. It meant more to them whether or not they got caught. They realized they might go to jail and even be killed, but to them the love for the Word of God was so strong. I remember right in this very church when a missionary to Uganda stood and began to say how that the natives of Uganda do not have enough money to purchase a Bible. So they will go to a conference and they'll put as many words as they can, as many Bible verses as they can in a certain amount of time and they'll sit there and they'll write them down. and and that'll fill up as many pages as they can. And and they'll come to the next conference and do that. And and they try to do that until they can either afford it or somebody can donate the money to get them a Bible and they love it so much. And I remember thinking, my God, they must be uh, an extravagant number, an astronomical number to get them. And then the missionary says, there's only 15 bucks American. I'm like, good God, I've got over 30 Bibles on my bookshelf and here's people that have to go and write your notes and, and hopefully get as much as they can because they love it so much by the way twice we've raised offerings and sent it to help buy Bibles for those people amen do you really realize what you're holding if the psalmist on that side of Calvary on that side of even more to yet come in the Old Testament could have that much love for the word of God how much love should we have for the word of God I've said this before, and I, I do not say this to sound condemning, I, I promise you, because I use my phone app, I love you, version. I use my iPad app, I love that, but folks, my phone is also my alarm clock, you know, I can also access files on it, it's, it's a mini computer, you know, I can chat and talk and play games, there's a whole host of things, like social media, this alone is a Bible, it's nothing else. It's not an alarm clock. It's not a video game. This alone. So maybe we ought to bring our Bibles with us. Maybe we ought to cherish them. When we preach, when we teach, when we read, when we study, when we learn, when we, well, okay. The next word that the uh, psalmist uses is the word ways. Ways. He uses this word 18 times and the word ways here descri- or way, describe the path or the way that we are to walk according to the word of God. Now he uses in verse 1 and also verse 3, let me read them 1 through 3 here, blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord, blessed are they that keep his testimonies that seek him with the whole heart, they also do no iniquity, they walk in his ways. Do you see what's the progression there? L- let me read it again, I'll read a little bit slower. Blessed are the undefiled in the way. If, if you're walking in the way of God, he calls you blessed and undefiled. Now, all of us know none of us are perfect. But as long as we're striving for that, imperfect people striving for perfection, what happens? We get closer to the goal, don't we? Okay? Who walk in the law of the Lord, here it is again, blessed are they that keep his testimonies. So you see the conditions. If I'm keeping them and all this, if I'm walking that way, I'm blessed. Watch this. Verse 3, they also do no iniquity, they walk in his ways. The consequence or the result of keeping his testimonies, walking in his ways, is I won't do iniquity. Do you see that? So if, if you have a hard time you know, getting over a, a, a sin in your life, a, a, you know, a little, little hiccup in your life, well... Go back to verse 1, 2, and 3. Am, am I walking in His ways? Am, am I keeping His testimonies? Am I doing these things? Because if you do, you'll do no iniquity. Twice in these first three verses, the psalmist has illustrated there's a right way and a wrong way. And it's his desire to choose the right way. The psalmist knew that the only, uh, that <clears throat> the only way His way would be cleansed was if he took heed to God's word. Verse 9. The psalmist knew the value of meditating on God. He didn't just walk in them. He didn't just love them. He didn't just value them. He meditated on them. There's a story about a preacher that went to a family's home. It's a church north, south, east, and west of here. And... uh, So he goes to the home of this family and uh, notices the Bible there, hardly been used. So anyway, they have a great meal and he does something unique and we'll come back to that in just a minute, but after the pastor leaves, after the meal and everything, the wife starts doing the dishes and she notices And one of her special spoons is missing. And she's like, I bet the pastor took our spoon. They searched the house high and low. And for a year she stewed about this. So finally she got up the nerve to come to the pastor and she said, Pastor, why did you take my spoon? I didn't think you was a thief. He goes, I'm not. I didn't take your spoon. Well, then what happened to it? He says, have you checked your Bible? And she went home, and she checked her Bible, and sure enough, it was in the pages of her Bible. How, how much are we really reading this? One pastor up, got up one Sunday, and he says, I want everybody to read Mark 17 for next Sunday. I'll be preaching from Mark 17. And, and uh, so the next Sunday come, and he says, all right, how many read Mark 17? And a whole bunch of people raised their hands, and he goes, I'm now going to preach about lying, because there is no Mark 17. Now, these are some comical illustrations, but I think they're driving home the point. How much do we value the Word of God? Hmm. You know, maybe, well, hmm. Maybe we've, we've lived in comfort for too long. You know, those stories about Uganda where they can't afford a Bible. The stories about nations where you, you, you could be killed if you have A Bible recently the Taliban was was banging down doors and if you had an app on your phone that had anything to do with Christianity or a Bible they were sometimes shooting them right there on the spot but ironically the church in Afghanistan was growing And I wonder sometimes if, if we've just become so casual to it. We've got Bible bookstores. We've got, you know, CBD, you know, Christian bookstore distributors online. We can order Bibles, you know, galore. We can, we've got phones that have hundreds of Bibles on them and programs that it's just like, well, it doesn't mean as much to us. Or does it? Is it our guide? Do we love it? Are we letting it speak to us? James calls this a mirror. Are we looking into it going, "Uh uh-oh, i got to fix that? Let me ask you a question. How many of you this morning looked into a mirror? Whether you were combing your hair, brushing your teeth, shaving or something, right? You know, I do it every morning. I'm like, "Mm -hmm." nicked myself shaving. How, you know, okay? So I'm making sure it's okay and, you know, right? Did you know we do the same thing? James says it's the perfect law of liberty that we look into. Do we look into it and walk away and say, well, that's not me. We sometimes bring a shovel to church. Well, I hope she's listening to this. I hope he's getting something out of this. Well, why don't you put the shovel down and say, okay, God, speak to my heart. I don't just love the word because it tells me I'm blessed. I love the word when it corrects me. Because the Bible says he only rebukes and chastens those whom he loves. So guess what? If you're rebuked or chastened, if you're feeling a little bit of conviction this morning and you're like, boy, I hope the pastor don't look at me while he's preaching, maybe it's because God loves you that you're feeling that. Actually, there's no maybe about it. It is true. He loves you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. The psalmist made the right choice in verse 30 to choose the way of God's truth. In verse 32... Not only did he choose that right way, he said, I will run in the way of God's commandments. This gives me the indication that he's going to live for God wholeheartedly, that he's going to put effort into it. I'm going to chase this thing down. I'm going to run in this thing. I don't even know the Bible says to run the race with patience that is set before us. It also says to lay aside weights and sins that easily beset us. Why? So that we can run more effectively. That's what the author is saying here. Or excuse me, the, the writer is saying here. I'm going to run in the way of God's commandments. I'm going to put off iniquity. I'm going to put off some weights that I don't need. I'm going to take off some of these things so that I can stay at a steady pace in the Word of God. I don't want to fall. I don't want to trip. I want to make it all the way. Hallelujah. Lord Jesus, I'm only not even halfway done. Man. You know, Lord, you held the sun back for Joshua. You mind holding the clock back? I got to preach. What I find interesting about the way here is that in the book of Acts, the church was first called the way. Before they were called Christians, they were called the way. I like something Paul said in Acts 24, 14. He says, but this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, they being the religious leaders, okay? So the, the church, the truth, which the religious leaders call heresy, watch this. So I worship the God of my fathers. Do you realize that how powerful that is on a oneness level? Paul, a monotheistic Jew, says, after the way that our religious leaders are calling heresy, that's how I worship the God of my fathers. He's reaching back to Abraham. He's reaching back to Moses. And he's saying, that's how I'm worshiping. In the way. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. As we can see, with these Psalms and these verses, God is the superlative epitome of credibility. And Psalm 119 proves it with each of its 176 verses. Time and again, we see God personified because He is the Word. the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So you could even say that all of these different words that are describing the Word are describing God. So again, He's the superlative epitome of credibility. And Psalm 119 proves it in every one of its 176 verses. The next word I want to bring you to as we wrap up here is going to be part one. I guess next week I'll preach, God is still not incredible. <laughs> is the word precepts used 21 times? Here's what it means. You ready? The specific guidelines. For those who define themselves as God's people. These are guidelines. They're not laws. They're not rules. They're guidelines. You understand what a guideline is? It's like a guardrail. It's there to protect you. Okay? It's not an absolute rule per se, but it's a guideline. It's something you say, I'm going to do this or not do this so I stay safe. How many of you put a seatbelt on when you get in your car? That's That's a guideline. Now, I know it's a law in a lot of nations and cities and states, I mean. But, but you do that as a guideline to, to help protect. I'm grateful that my daughter had hers on in her accident. I'm thankful that there was airbags that protected her. You know, amen. So we have guidelines, right? Okay. Well, this is what a precept is. It's a guideline. It's used, again, 22 times. And by the way, also here, he says, I will keep thy precepts diligently. Also 22 times. The word keep is used. Illustrating how much the psalmist is going to do something in the Word of God. Amen. The psalmist meditated on God's precepts. Longed for God's precepts. He realized that true freedom, verse 45, that true freedom was the result of seeking and obeying God's precepts i want to say that again. He realized that true freedom was the result of seeking and obeying God's precepts. If anybody ever tells you living for God is bondage, you take them to Psalm 119.45 and you tell them, oh no, I found true freedom in seeking God and obeying Him. I found true freedom in, in, in following after God. I, I was bound before How many of you know that that sin held us captive? Come on, some of us were addicted to drugs and alcohol and other things, but God set us free, amen. We're not bound now, we're free. Oh yes, we've committed ourselves to be bond servants unto the Lord, but it's a willful commitment. It's a willful service to say, God, I'm going to follow you. As much as I love the world, I'm going to love you more. As much as I love my sin, I'm going to love you more. And that's what it means to diligently keep his precepts. I want you to stand with me right now. If you have your Bible, I want you to get it out right now. If you don't, grab your phone or something that represents it. And I want you to hold it close to your heart uh, like those people did when they got their very first Bible. And I want you to take the last few minutes, uh, seconds of this first half and begin to thank God with me for the Word of God. Come on, whatever God has said to your heart, uh, whatever God has done in your life, uh, can you lift him up and thank him right now? Oh, Jesus, thank you for the word of God. Every time it's corrected me, every time it's rebuked me, every time it's helped me. Thank you, oh God. Every time it's blessed me, every time it's picked me up when I fall down. Thank you for forgiving me every time I sinned. Oh God, you're my advocate. You are everything to me, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your word. Hallelujah. Praise the name of Jesus. Amen. Can we lift him up together? Thank you, Lord. You're worthy. You're worthy. You're worthy. You're worthy. <laughs> Amen. God bless you. See you back here. For uh... Oh, thank you. Yes. On your way out, please grab communion. Um, and if you, if you want, just keep it in your pocket or ladies, your purse or something, uh, families keep enough for your children as well. We're going to do communion, but we don't want to have to pass it out because the way pastor Lucas is going to be preaching it at the end of second half. So grab that on your way out, please. And uh, have that ready. God bless you. We'll see you at the beginning of first, uh, second half.